Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bullock, your host. And today we are going to start part two of our series called The Neonatal Intensive Care Unit and Medical Conditions Common to Premature Babies with our guests, Dr. Scott Cameron, Judy Philbrook, and Kirstie Miles. So stay tuned because here comes part two of my discussion with them. Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Okay, so why don't we transition into some medical conditions and terms? A lot of times when we have patients that are referred to us, they will send a NICU discharge summary, and there's lots of medical terms on there. And sometimes our therapists know what that is, and sometimes we don't. And a lot of things I learned, I Googled it before there was Google because there wasn't one. I really don't know what I did, but I just did something, figure it out. <laughs> Maybe I used like an encyclopedia because there wasn't a Google it. Anyhow, I did it. And so anyway, but hey, now we don't have to Google it because we can ask y'all. So what I was hoping is we could just sort of talk about some typical medical conditions, terms for premature babies in the NICU. So why don't you just start us off by talking about what patients are in the NICU? Who's in there? So, and Judy can certainly add to this, I think broadly speaking, you would have a combination of premature babies, which you would expect, and full-term babies. Today in the United States, typically premature babies range from 23 weeks gestation So that's, what, five months and three weeks, roughly, assuming a nine to 10-month pregnancy, somewhere in that range. So 23 weeks would be sort of the beginning of when a neonatal unit would resuscitate a fetus, a newborn, up to 36 weeks these days. 34 weeks to 36 weeks would be called a late preterm baby. And then as you start to move down, less than 1,500 grams would be a very low birth weight infant, and less than 1,000 grams would be an extremely low birth weight infant. So it kind of moves from a general preterm to a more specific birth weight type term. But just very specifically on the 23-week baby, we just had a journal club recently, and this is a recurring topic where there are no great answers, but it's a moral and ethical and spiritual and whatever you want to include there dilemma. But nationwide, that's typically what people are doing around 23 weeks. And it's not easy because the statistics are roughly one in three of those babies survive to discharge, which means, unfortunately, roughly two out of three don't survive to discharge. And the ones that do survive, a lot of them have morbidity. So they may have mental retardation, which is not a politically correct term, but that is the term that's used in the medical literature still for some reason. Cerebral palsy, blindness, and deafness are sort of the big four morbidities. Hmm. But as you move from 23 weeks, each additional week, literally each additional day, but it's really cohorted into weeks, the mortality goes down. So if you're at 30% at 23 weeks, At 24 weeks, it goes to about 50% survival, and the morbidities go down, and then it continues to rise, such that when you get up to 27, 28 weeks, the mortality is 
probably 10% or less. So that means about 85 to 90% are surviving with a much less morbidity rate. And then once you get into the 30s week, and kind of referring back to JFK son at 34 weeks, that's really highly unusual for those babies to die or have any sort of morbidity. Have those morbidity rates been that good for a long time? Or is that kind of new? It's a moving target. Right. And it's influenced by a lot of different things. And probably the biggest thing is the early respiratory management mm. and the changes in that. And Scott mentioned bubble CPAP earlier. If we can avoid ventilators because ventilators push pressure into your lungs and do large amounts of damage. So if we can avoid ventilating these babies for long periods of time, they do much better. But you have to remember that with a premature baby, every body system is not developed and the baby has to go through growth in all of those systems. And the body is composed of many different systems and there can be lots of different things that interact and cause problems. So morbidity and mortality rates are a moving target. And with medical advances and new technologies, we hope that those continue to go down. So then you're saying that then some babies who are 23, 24, five-weekers are not on a ventilator. That's correct. But they would be on bubble CPAP. So they'll probably be on the bubble CPAP for a period of time. In fact, we usually don't try them off until they're about 1,200 grams, which is about 30 weeks gestation. Yeah, which is new. So to get back to your question on, has this always been the case? Judy mentioned earlier surfactant, but surfactant is this protein, fatty, detergent mix that all of us make in our lungs, but premature babies are lacking. So without that, you're really left to the ventilator. And like Judy said, the ventilator has barotrauma and volutrauma, which is basically pressure and volume pushed in by the ventilator that really damages these fragile premature lungs. But in 19... 90, right around there, surfactant became available. So they call it exogenous surfactant or surfactant that this is kind of crazy, but they harvest it from calves, as in cows and calves and even pigs. So minced up a lung that they process and then put in a vial and then we <laughs> infuse into a premature infant's lungs. Wow. They're actually moving towards a recombinant type surfactant mm. and that'll be available in the not too distant future. But that surfactant is able to allow the baby's lungs to open and close more easily. And then we can get the babies off the ventilator and move them to bowl CPAP. But that was 1990. Things changed with ventilator settings over the next 15 years. And then just in the last 10 years or so, there's been a huge push not to even put the breathing tube in at all. So you can be the smallest baby, which means a pound roughly, mm-hmm. which is just unimaginable, but a pound in the delivery room. And if you're breathing on your own, Instead of automatically getting a breathing tube, you just get CPAP. So CPAP, two little prongs in the nose and the nostrils, and you're getting pressure, you're getting oxygen. And if that's enough to stabilize you, you can go to the NICU and grow on that. So that's a gift to be able to be born at 23 weeks and you're breathing spontaneously. In other words, you're breathing on your own. You don't need a ventilator to remind you to breathe. If you don't breathe, unfortunately, you're going to need a breathing tube and a ventilator. But If that's the case, we can do other things like give you caffeine just to stimulate you to breathe, kind of excite you, and hopefully that's enough to get the breathing tube out quickly so we don't do that damage that we talked about to the lungs. They're also doing caffeine for bradycardias, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Same thing. 
how much better for that parent to walk up and see the baby with just the prongs in the nose versus the whole ventilator and the whole like bonding? Because I can imagine that could be a problem maybe. And then what age do babies start making surfactant on their own? Typically, it's around day three, day four, day five. They start to make their own. Regardless of their premature. Yeah. So once you've been born, these stress hormones start to cause that to be upregulated and you start to make it on your own. But we want to cover the baby day one, day two, day three with this preparation that we talked about if the baby needs it. And then they typically will start to make their own, like we do every day as adults, and are able to keep their lungs inflated because they're making their own surfactant. In utero, is it typically by 24 weeks, it's starting to kick in? It's kind of like the mortality and the morbidity curve. So the older you are gestational age, the more likely you are to have made some surfactant Mm -hmm. and not need as much respiratory support. Once you get up to 30 weeks plus, the likelihood of ever needing surfactant is extremely low. But gosh, I think with bubble CPAP, we may be intubating 23, 24 weekers, maybe 25, routinely putting the breathing tube in, taking the breathing tube immediately out after we deliver the surfactant back on bubble CPAP. But most of those older gestational ages never see a breathing tube anymore. So that's a real blessing for those babies for sure. Huge. So does that mean then less babies go home on oxygen? Yes. And that's because you have less chronic lung disease. When I first started at Cape Fear, we had a developmental clinic and we had a pulmonary clinic. Mm. And I don't know that they've seen a pulmonary clinic patient for five years or something. It's been quite a while. I mean, it just phased out. Wow. Amazing. I didn't realize that there wasn't a pulmonary clinic anymore. And then, so I guess you don't see these parents lugging around these like machines that these oxygens and monitors. Right. Yeah, and, that's a that's game good. changer too. That's it, good. It's hard enough to get the car seat in and out of anywhere. <laughs> then you got the diaper bag. Oxygen. God forbid you have another child. And, wow. Yeah, it was a doozy. These like super moms with like whole arms <laughs> carrying all this stuff. So why don't we run through a few other terms that you typically see for babies who are in the NICU? What does it mean to be born at a thousand grams more or less than? Why is that significant? You know, just that? to clean up that last topic we just had. So if you're born prematurely and you have immature lungs, Mm -hmm. a diagnosis you may see on the discharge summary is respiratory distress syndrome. And people will use the acronym RDS. You know, medicine, just like physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy has its own language. Mm -hmm. And it's just if you're not part of that culture, it can be very frustrating for sure. So the first year of medical school and for nurse practitioners as well is language training. It literally is learning a foreign language and trying to apply that to what you see. But in this specific case, so RDS or respiratory distress syndrome is this lack of surfactant that you have during the first few days of life. And you may need that surfactant from outside down a breathing tube. And then a lot of those kids will evolve into what's called chronic lung disease. So you'll see CLD and kind of synonymous with that is BPD or bronco pulmonary dysplasia, which is an older term, but it's essentially premature lungs that have become stunted. So they come out, let's say at 23 weeks, they were developing normally and they're very fragile, pink, sponge-like, and they come out and boom, there's a breathing tube, there's oxygen, there's pressure, there's volume that's stretching them out 60 times a minute, completely remodels them in a very bad way and they start to scar down with time. Hmm. So those units that used to get oxygen in, carbon dioxide out, are forever changed. And that's what we refer to as CLD, chronic lung disease, or again, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, BPD. So those are common things you might see on a discharge summary. And like Judy said, 
Hopefully, you'll see less and less of the CLD and the BPD because of this early respiratory management. Try not to put the breathing tube down, and if we have to give surfactant, we do it very quickly with the breathing tube, take the breathing tube immediately back out and put them on bubble CPAP. So that's decreased chronic lung disease and BPD dramatically across the nation, and certainly in Cape Fear Valley. I think we've moved from what, since 2007, mid-30s percent to less than 10 percent with that specific diagnosis, which has been a blessing. It's been a good thing. And then sometimes we'll hear parents talk later when the children are older, oh, well, he's got asthma because he had lung disease from when he was premature. Mm-hmm. But then is asthma necessarily related to any of this condition at all? I think there's some association. They say that if the mom has a history of asthma and then she has a premature baby, that that baby is, has a greater disposition mm-hmm. toward it too. But yes, even if you're premature and you've had a relatively good course and you haven't required ventilator support, your lungs have still had to grow and mature. So you are definitely at risk for more frequent colds and RSV and all the respiratory diseases that are out there. And so I think maybe that those babies do have an increased risk in asthma. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I think really has made a difference in neonatal care is how we feed and handle the nutrition of the babies. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge push right now to give 100% human milk. In fact, to the point that we have donor milk now at Cape Fear. Wow. And so babies that are less than 1,250 grams receive either their own mother's milk or if the mother cannot provide it or does not choose to provide it, then we get donor milk to give to those babies because they do much better with that. But we try to get their feeding started early, increase their feedings, and get their IVs out because an IV is a potential source of infection, and an infection can prolong your hospital stay and obviously cause additional morbidities. And then one awesome opportunity, because some of those, I remember when I was at work at the NICU very, very, very long time mm-hmm. ago, the moms would carry in like coolers of milk. I mean, like literally coolers of milk. <laughs> and what opportunity for them to help somebody else's baby who's not able to do that. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yes. And for the mom herself, I mean, sometimes when your baby's 500 grams in an incubator, there's not a whole lot you can do. Right. So providing the milk is something you can do. And it's really cool when moms say, oh, I have so much milk that I'm taking it to grandma's and she's got it in the freezer and we're going to have to buy another freezer. And it's like the best thing ever. That's awesome. Yeah. And we celebrate that. We've got little cards on the bedside that tell how many cc's they pumped that day. And, you know, it's like, yeah, this is great. That is great. You know, one of the most important things that a mom does is feed her baby. It's huge. If you can feed your baby, you're like, okay, well, at least I did that, you know, and it's major. But if you can't, man, that's a big thing. Also, years ago, we used to not allow them to go to breast. Mm-hmm. to nurse until they were like 33, 34 weeks. And now, I mean, with the babies just on the CPAP, the moms can hold, and the dads can hold them right. a lot sooner. And, you know, it's like, okay, so if they're at the breast and they're trying to breastfeed, let them. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to actually suck effectively and get milk, but it helps the mom's milk production. Right. And it helps the baby too. Yeah. Wow. It's just, was- you know, more evidence that the pendulum is swinging in terms of this technology. So this huge technology push from 70s to 80s to 90s. I wouldn't say that neonatology is becoming more minimalist, but this idea of every baby who's premature gets a breathing tube put on the ventilator, that has certainly gone by the wayside because we know that unless you really need it, we may be causing more harm than we are doing good. Same thing with nutrition. It used to be days before we started anything through the gut. It was put an IV in. Let's give IV nutrition with different proteins and carbohydrates and fats and whatnot. Now it's let's try to get breast milk in the day of life and let's put the baby skin to skin. Let's get breast milk down in the gut to help prevent infection and do all the good that it can do. So yeah, it's definitely a change in the middle model. 
So then if we're talking about the gut, is that where we are now? We moved to lungs to the gut. But okay. yeah, that yeah, works for me. Moving right. through the body. Here we are. So would that be a decrease in neck? And can you all explain what neck is? I neck was going to ask that too. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I was going to ask mass. it along the lines of, are they doing any fortification with the breast milk if the baby is yes. severely underweight to fortify so they're not getting as much volume? But Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, there's all kinds of preparations. And it's so confusing because there's 24 calorie and there's 26 calorie and there's 28 calorie and now what we've done you can actually get a product with just the cream no. So we're adding that, which also increases calories. But yes, there's multiple things that you can do to increase both calories and nutrition. Because some of them, they really need the protein more than the fats. So mm-hmm. yeah. it's a huge science. Yeah, so that was part of this push with human milk. And I think our data recently, Dr. Galler, who has been just fantastic in our unit in terms of quality improvement, one of the statistics in our unit is babies who have received all human milk for their entire life since birth, those babies rarely develop this thing called NEC, so this acronym for necrotizing enterocolitis. And I don't think we've had a baby who received a complete human milk diet get or develop NEC since 2013, which is fantastic. Wow. Um, Knock on wood. So we're about three years out from that. But it is this really bad diagnosis. So the name sounds scary. And in fact, it is scary. Necrotizing, meaning dead tissue and enterocolitis, meaning kind of small bowel, large bowel, itis inflammation of. But it typically is something that happens in the late 20s, weeks gestation into the early 30s. And it's in the teens to 20s day of life. So a baby who's on nasal CPAP, who's doing well, everybody's thinking this is a baby who's going to be just feeding and growing, not very exciting and celebrating and spending time with a baby. And then all of a sudden the baby develops symptoms like leftover food in the stomach. You've done a cycle of feeding and there's a lot of food still left because the food's not being pushed through where the baby develops a really distended abdomen or just starts to have vital sign type issues. And it's a radiographic diagnosis. So we get an x-ray and we see this very ominous picture in the gut of essentially air that has moved outside the lumen of the bowel. So air should be inside the bowel, but it's moved to the wall of the bowel. And if it then goes further into the abdominal cavity, it can make the baby even sicker. And then it can actually perforate and you can get stool into the abdominal cavity. And that is a systemic like head to toe type inflammatory process really makes you sick. And those babies end up having to go to the operating room and have that sick piece of bowel resected. And those babies are really at increased risk for death. So a significant portion of those babies don't survive. So you can see a happy baby feeding and growing. Then all of a sudden, wow, where did this come from? And then realizing, wait a minute, breast milk, human milk, this may be the cure. And so that has been a huge push, both expense and time, to be able to implement that here, Chapel Hill, Duke, other large units around the country. And there's some great data to suggest that it's working. So do you have like a breast milk bank, freezer, refrigerator? I'm just imagining you've got to store it somewhere. Yes. And it has to be stored under certain conditions. Sure. And they have monitoring for the temperature. And right. Yes. That's it. All mm-hmm. of that. And they order however much they need of the donor milk. We actually get our donor milk from California. Really? Believe it or not. There's huh. a lot to it. There is a lot to it. That's a whole nother podcast. Actually, that note. could be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> it really could. And that would be Keith Gallagher. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll hot dial him after this. That's right. And ben. how to deal with administration. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah. There's some 
red taped all that. Per ounce, it's like $50 or something. It's ridiculous. You they do to, DNA testing yeah, you'd have to, to make sure that the mother who's supplying the milk is really the mother who's supplying the milk. Right. Maybe yeah. I'm sure that's my whole, ignorance, but they have to whole. pasteurize milk the way by the grocery store. So I'm sure there has to be some type of process as milk yeah. has to be sent through. Screening the yeah. mother who's right. donating yeah. and then looking just at the milk can't. itself. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You just can't eat off somebody else's plate just randomly. You just don't do that. So you right. can't do the breast milk either. Yeah. I'm going to break it down for us, people. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, you know, you don't see neck that much anymore. It used to be you'd see it all the time on mm-hmm. lots of discharge summaries, but mm-hmm. not as much. I don't think now that you're saying that. I actually had a friend that went through it in Pittsburgh. Her baby, born at 34 weeks, mm-hmm. ended up having neck. Mm-hmm. So how about reflux? Do you think that maybe using human breast milk has decreased the amount of reflux? Because it seems to be there's some kind of, no. Because a lot of times I'll hear he or she was premature, they have reflux. But, but that's muscle development. Mm, and I'm not okay. sure that human milk really has anything to do with. So is there a higher percentage of babies who are born prematurely that have reflux? Do those two things go hand in hand? Or is it just like a coincidence and people think that? That's a good question. I'm not sure we can speak to that. You know, I think an important thing is when you hear the term reflux, that there's pathologic reflux Mm -hmm. and then there's just sort of normal reflux. So you hear people say all babies reflux. So if you feed a baby enough volume, they're going to spit for sure. But the question is, do they spit so much that they're losing calories? They're Mm -hmm. actually spitting out calories and they're failing to thrive. So their weight doesn't increase or when they spit is painful. So they spit up and they've got this painful acidic taste in the esophagus and their oropharynx in the back of the mouth. And you say, this baby is just beyond irritable. So that would be sort of pathologic reflux where this is happening, all babies reflux, but in this particular situation, it's not agreeing with the baby. The baby's in pain where the baby's not growing. So then you've got to come up with some remedies. You've got to come up with some tricks to handle the reflux. So how do y'all handle it? Well, it's another situation of becoming increasingly minimalist. So it used to be drugs. It used Mm -hmm. to be... Like, let's give them this and that. and But now those drugs have sort of fallen by the wayside in some really obvious common sense things like putting the head of the bed up. So letting gravity help. Holding the baby after you feed it with the head up. Yeah. Burping the baby. You know, what's that? Not using a tube to force it down and expect it to come back up and be amazed by that. So, yeah, I've got a gravity rice cereal to kind of thicken it and keep it down. More frequent feedings, lower volumes. You know, some pretty obvious things. The idea of wrapping the stomach surgically, which used to be, I don't Mm -hmm. want to say commonplace, but a lot of procedures Mm -hmm. to handle reflux, which is a huge procedure for a neonate. I can't remember the last time we had even entertained that. So, yeah. Common sense. Yeah. Yeah, I have a non-common sense story with my daughter I can share on another day involving reflux. But basically, I'll just break it down. I took her into the pediatrician when she was about two months old. I'd already packed my bags for Duke and planned for them to put the helicopter for Duke in the parking lot. And I went in there with no appointment and just stormed the office, basically said, hey, my baby's having seizures, and I'll see the pediatrician right now. Thank you. No appointment. And so I just need sort of a check-in with him for him to confirm that she is indeed having seizures, and then we will be airlifted to Duke. So when will the (laughs) helicopter be here? And I have been treating babies and seeing babies for a very long time because <laughs> I wasn't that young when I had her. But come to find out, hmm, if you just sort of held her up after she ate instead of laying her flat to change her diaper, hmm. she was experiencing reflux. So, yeah, some common sense stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. Among, even among parents who maybe even know, but just maybe you're so stressed out because 
they just want their baby to be doing fine. And anyway, yeah. he didn't ever lift us to Duke that day. And actually, he didn't call DSS either, which I think I might would have. <laughs> <laughs> She's crazy. Come get this kid. We can't send her home with this woman. But anyway, I'm telling that story to say, hey, sometimes just instruction of parents to say, hey, yeah. don't lay them down flat. Hold them back up. Less volume. Slower feeds. We don't have to use a fast nipple. We use a slow nipple. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why don't we talk about some other diagnoses? I think you mentioned earlier IVH. So I, that for... Yeah physical therapist and speech therapist and occupational therapist. That's one that stands out. So these neurologic diagnoses, and really they are just anatomic locations with a description beside them. So you see IVH, which stands for intraventricular hemorrhage. And so we all have this ventricular system inside of our brains. There are two chambers full of spinal fluid. They're connected and then they tee off and run down our backbone and deliver spinal fluid, which has nutrients for the spinal cord. There's Production and there's reabsorption of this spinal fluid. So if it's altered the plumbing system in any way, it can be a problem. In premature babies, there's this place at the floor of each ventricle. Again, there's two ventricles. It has a very fragile network of blood vessels and neurons. And when a baby first comes out, unlike us, they don't have the ability to regulate their blood pressure, especially in their brain. So they come out, there's the delivery, which is pretty stressful, and there may be complications. The blood pressure goes up, the blood pressure goes down, the blood pressure goes up, blood pressure goes down. And we're able as adults to maintain a steady blood pressure. We're able to keep the blood and keep the oxygen flowing and get a pretty stable rate and therefore we're not affected by stressors in life. But the baby's not, especially the premature baby. So that fragile network is at risk for rupturing, and when those blood vessels bleed, then sometimes it can just be kind of contained, and there's a grading system that's been around for years. It's called a grade 1 IVH, and clinically... We see it on ultrasound when we put a transducer through the fontanelle. We look in there and say, oh, there are those two little spots or hopefully just one little spot. And long term, that typically doesn't amount to too much. There is a little bit of mortality associated with that, maybe a little bit of morbidity. And then it's just a grading system that sort of goes up from there. Grade two would be more blood in the ventricle but less than 50% of the ventricle full of blood. Grade three is when that ventricle dilates because it's got enough blood in there to irritate the chamber. And grade four is when there's actually some blood outside of the chamber where there's been a venous infarction. And essentially that means that there just wasn't enough blood and oxygen to the actual nerves and you develop blood outside the chambers, actually in the nerves of the brain. So you can imagine a grade three and grade four much more significant and are prognostically worse worrisome for long-term development. I always explain it to families because I've gotten reports and they've not really understood what that meant. And so clinically, when we see it, I describe it like a bruise, like they've gotten this bruise and over the next couple of days, it probably gotten a little bit worse. You know, when you get a bruise, it gets a little bit darker. It starts to turn dark purple and then it starts to resorb and it starts to get smaller and you start to see improvement. And I've always loved stroke recovery and rehab. And so knowing that and then being able to work in the pediatric population and apply those principles to pediatrics and that just neurological recovery that you can get in working with the pediatric population, I've always found so rewarding because they can make some huge gains. Yeah. I like that analogy. Mm -hmm. And premature babies with their developing brains, sometimes they can rewire 
And what you might think would be a terrible insult may turn out to be not so bad. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that came out of Journal Club the other night was that we're terrible prognosticators. Mm -hmm. And that's true. And I specifically remember when I was in training that we got a piece of paper and it had like four different cases. And we were supposed to say which baby was going to be normal and which baby was not going to be normal. Mm. And about 100%, the ones that you thought were going to be normal were the ones that weren't. It's difficult to say what you've got, and especially as they're developing and they're getting their therapy and progressing, and if they have a lot of family involvement and the, they're active and everybody's on the same page and doing the best that they can for the child, they can do remarkable things in situations you'd be like, mm, that's not going to be good. Mm-hmm. Right. So grade one, two, three, four does not necessarily mean the child will have any other diagnoses related to that. Is that right? You know, I would add this, and it's like Judy said, we are not good prognosticators. And when I say we, I mean evidence-based literature. So over the time, you see mortality with grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four, and then increased risk for mental retardation and cerebral palsy based on those ultrasounds, one, two, three, and four. But we've realized that really the numbers don't bear that out. And like Judy said, a loving family with great therapy over time is miraculous. And you may see someone with a grade two that you expect, I think they're going to do fine, but in a resource-limited environment, you go, wow, that's not how I expected that to turn out. But also see some with a grade four where you're thinking on the left side, this is going to be a hemiplegia on the right. And you talk to the family about this, but in the right environment, the child actually does pretty well. Mm-hmm. So I think it comes back to gestational age. The literature does suggest that even with no intraventricular hemorrhage, about one out of three babies born extremely premature are still at risk for these kinds of disabilities, unfortunately. So it's helpful. I think it's kind of a guide. You could say at the very least you're at risk for, but you can imagine those lead to tricky conversations for healthcare professionals talking to families because you can draw a picture, you can show them this, but then you're thinking blood in the brain. That doesn't sound good. Well, tell me more. Well, you're at risk for this, and you can talk about that, but we're sort of painting this picture and not really putting a lot of flesh on it. So that's one thing I think where you guys are inheriting this mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, how is this going to turn out? And what I heard in the NICU was this. They may or may not even remember that conversation, quite right. frankly. Right. But yeah, I don't want to paint it as something that's not significant because mm-hmm. I think it can lead to a lot of anxiety. Well, and I think also nobody told these kids what a grade three or four, two or one bleed means. These kids come in, they're like, well, I'm fine. What's your issue? You know? Right. <laughs> we so, always say they didn't read the book. They didn't read yeah. the book. Nobody told them. So yeah. they're like, I, this is what I can do and not do. We see it every day, all day. So yeah, it's pretty exciting from our perspective because we get to see what they can do. So what about PVL? Because we'll see that a lot also. Well, can you explain everyone what PVL is? And is that a thing that's associated with prematurity? You know, it's another one of those anatomic descriptions. And it, a lot of these names, there's not that much imagination that goes into them. But it is a foreign language. So periventricular leukomalacia, peri just meaning kind of besides. So it's beside the ventricle when you look at the ultrasound and leukomalacia just meaning sort of this white malformed tissue. And it's essentially that. It has a very white echo dense type look on ultrasound where there hasn't been enough blood, there hasn't been enough oxygen to get to these particular neurons in the brain. And a lot of times it's in the area where there's motor control at risk. So these are the kids you start to think about cerebral palsy long term. But again, the conversations kind of, I think to be fair, have to run this spectrum. Well, we see this and I'm going to draw a picture for you. This is 
is what it means. This is what it could lead to. And I think we need to be cognizant and have our antennae up and watch for that. But there's going to be a core of people that are going to sort of walk beside you over the next two years at least and be looking for these particular things and get appropriate therapy if need be. And is it associated just with babies who are premature or can you be born full term and have this? Mostly premature. And I like to differentiate the intraventricular hemorrhage and the periventricular leukomalacia. They're both affected by blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So with the IVH... The fluctuations, because they're premature, they don't have the regulation systems that Scott was explaining that adults do. But with the intraventricular hemorrhage, you've got too much blood, too much pressure. Mm. But with the leukomalacia, you have not enough. So they're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. But you can still have both at the same time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, again, you have fluctuations, Mm -hmm. and yes. Mm -hmm. That is a good point, yeah. We will see babies who are kids who have got both, yeah. And sometimes when you're reading that report before they walk in and you're preparing and, like, Mm -hmm. what's going to come into the office and you see paraventricular leukomalacia, grade 3, grade 4 bleeds, you don't know. You don't know. And so when you Google it, it can... Yeah. You know, and I think if you were to see that, those kinds of grade three, grade four, PVL, certainly you would think this is a high risk infant. And you put that in the context of a 23, 24 week gestation. And you're thinking this child is somewhat, I need to follow closely because that child certainly is at risk. And that's the child when we discharge the baby, everyone in the NICU is fingers crossed. How is this baby going to do? I can think of two that we have on caseload that we see over in Southern Pines that you wouldn't know it. And they are both grade three, grade Fantastic. four, PVL. One of them, I know you know, we've been seeing her since she was a baby. Mm-hmm. And she still comes into clinic today, and she's doing awesome. Mm-hmm. Nice. It's very cool when you see that and you understand, and then you see these little people come be bopping in their tutus or cowboy hats or whatever. And if you understand, it's kind of almost a little celebration with the parents. You're like, man, mm-hmm. you are doing a phenomenal job with your child. Mm-hmm. It's awesome because there's a lot of environmental support that can really change the course of a child's life. And so it's pretty exciting. And it's, you know, these parents have been through a lot. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of nice to, as a therapist, if you understand it too, to be able to say, man, just to sort of get like, attaboy, you're Mm -hmm. doing awesome with your baby, your child. And wow, look at all the great things they can do because of all the stuff that you've Mm -hmm. done. So for some of these parents who've been through a lot, it's kind of good to build them up. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's still things maybe to work on with the child. It's good Mm -hmm. to take a minute to be like, wow. Awesome. And then also it's important to think too with some of those babies, they're moving and they're walking and they're talking and they're doing their thing, but it's also good to continue to monitor them because sometimes I'll notice they'll want to discharge a child at age three or something or four. And maybe there's reason too, but those with that significant history like that, they don't necessarily need to be seen for speech every week, but just sort of to watch them a little bit because sometimes, especially like speech language wise, age five, six some things can start to surface. Mm -hmm. So I like to sort of spike, don't forget my name or don't lose my (laughs) number or people like me. Anyway, don't just don't lose our number. So that's the end of part two of this podcast titled the neonatal intensive care unit and the medical conditions common to premature babies. So it was a great learning and discussion in this podcast. Stay tuned for the next one where we'll hear more from Dr. Scott Cameron, Judy Philbrook and Kirstie Miles. And we'll catch you next time on another episode of the working therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 